Hey everyone, Eric here. Just a quick update before we get to today's show. We recently conducted a survey of our readers and the number one request that came back was to have transcripts of the podcast. So we went out, found a service that does this, and now we offer subscribers full transcripts of every show. So when you sign up for a subscription to CAP, you'll get the transcripts, full access to thousands of articles in our archives that are all indexed by country and keyword, Plus, of course, the daily newsletter that arrives in your inbox every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions are super affordable at just $75 for students and teachers and $149 for everyone else. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndica Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, as always, before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to our new Patreon members. So happy that people are starting to sign up for this great community that we're building over at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. We're posting regular updates. Kobus and I are now doing our first videos as well. So our faces for radio are now becoming video faces, and we're just starting to ramp up our Zoom chats and the Zoom briefings with uh, with our Patreon members. So if you'd like to join this community, please head over to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Kobus, it has been just about two months now since Haikinde Hishulema was elected president of Zambia. And in the short time that he's been in office, he's been working hard to assemble a new team and investigating the absolutely miserable state of the country's financial affairs. And the situation is actually much worse than they originally thought. Let's go to Lusaka now, where last week Finance Minister Situmbeko Musokutani delivered the bad news that the country's external debts are actually much higher than previously stated, and it only accounts for a part of the problem. The total external debt as at the end of 2021, June 2021, stood at 14 points. billion, 14.48 billion, almost 15 billion dollars. Madam Speaker, the debt that I have highlighted so far is just the external component, but there is also substantial domestic debt, in other words, debt owed to people within Zambia, including arrears to suppliers that the government must deal with. This, of course, makes the situation worse. So Zambia's debt's now close to $15 billion. That's a 12% increase over what was previously stated. 
So the numbers are bad and getting worse. He did not account for why they upwardly revised those figures. And it might have something to do with the new research that came from the team at the China-Africa Research Initiative that revealed the amount owed to China's 18 creditors, at least 18 creditors, is more than double what was previously stated by the government. That is from $3 billion to $6.6 billion. Now, on the issue of Chinese debt, President Hishilema has been very quiet and has said almost nothing on the issue publicly. This comes as a little bit of a surprise to me because if you recall last year, when Zambia became the first country to default on a portion of its euro bond debt, one of the key reasons that bondholders refused the government's request to provide an extension to meet their payments was because of a lack of transparency on what is owed to Chinese creditors. IMF officials have also indicated similar concerns as well. So the main issue here is that the IMF and bondholders have been reluctant to provide any kind of meaningful debt relief until the government comes clean on what it owes to Chinese creditors because they don't want to be the only ones taking a haircut while the Chinese get repaid. That is the big concern, at least it was last year. So with that in mind, it's a bit odd that he hasn't done more to provide the kind of transparency on Chinese debt that the markets so desperately want. In fact, one of the only public comments that he's made to date on the issue of Chinese debt was an interview with uh, Luquesa Burak of the BBC News Africa service back on September 2nd. And I've got the soundbite here, and you're going to hear that he's not too keen on directly answering her question. Well, let's turn to um, those creditor negotiations. It's been stressed that the IMF is going to be one of those organizations that is key to your recovery. Why? And also, how is that going to fit in with the fact that a quarter of Zambia's foreign debt, which stands at £13 billion, is actually held by China and Chinese entities, and they are locked in, which gags Zambia by their highly secretive clauses? That won't sit well with the IMF. Before we talk about the IMF, before we talk about the Chinese, we ourselves... As, as citizens of Zambia, we ourselves as the government, as a, as a leadership of this new leadership of this country, send a clear message that we are here to do business and serious business. What do I mean? We are here to control frivolous expenditure, to be prudent, to make sure that we understand that resources are scarce and they ought to be utilized in a most optimal manner. That's very, very important for us. Uh, before we can we can extend a request to anybody to assist us, we must assist. We must help ourselves look better. This is fundamental, and that's who we are. And you already we're beginning to show that side of us that we're different. We come in with the seriousness. We come in with integrity. We come in with uh, uh, you know, if you like, self restraint on uh, on utilization or, or accessing public resources. Then we can walk with our heads high to talk to the IMF that we need the support. We're actually not concerned about the IMF so-called conditionalities. Our own minimum requirements are much higher than what the IMF wants. I think that's what the people of Zambia need. They, they need zero tolerance to corruption, and we're bringing that to the table. Now, China, you talked about China. Uh, we are aware of the Chinese uh, you know, debt portfolio. We understand what is going on roughly, and the Chinese are aware that if the economy is not reorganized to bring about growth, they are, their own debt stock is at risk of being paid, Lucas. I mean, this is common sense, but, it, but it's for me, this is bread and butter. So they understand that 
We need to talk. We are talking. We've started the initial steps. They've indicated that they'll cooperate. And I think we are able to do things with them that will help this economy stabilize. We want to develop the country, develop the resource endowments this country has, which you know very well, the minerals you know, the, the water resources, the land resources, the paper resources, so that we can grow this economy and make it credible to do business with anyone around the world. So not a lot of specifics coming out of President Hishilema there. That, as far as I know, since he's been in office, is the most details that he's provided on the extent of the Chinese loans and also the conversations that are underway with Chinese creditors. So, Kobus, based on the revised figures from both the finance ministry and the team at Kerry, Chinese creditors now account for 46% of Zambia's external debt, are you as surprised as I am that he hasn't been more forthright on what he plans to do about these Chinese debt issues? Yeah, maybe not so surprised. I assume that there's a lot of there's a lot of action behind the scenes, but yeah, I also assume that that anything he says in public about the Chinese will immediately be seized on by everyone around the world and and in his own country. So you know, kind of in in a situation where where the the the, the issue around debt is so sensitive and there's so many secrets already, you know in play already, I can imagine that it would make sense for them to try and kind of keep it as quiet as they can, while kind of working in the background. That said, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be very comforting to to Zambian voters, who I can imagine must be freaking out. You know, like the the the, the the economic situation in Zambia is really is really scary, and I can imagine it must be of great concern to everyone. Well, let's dive into this with the two authors of that report from the China Africa Research Initiative. We're thrilled to welcome back to the show Carrie's director, Professor Deborah Braudigam, and senior research assistant Yinxuan Wang. Deborah Yinxuan, good morning to you both, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Deborah, let's start with you. The 6.6 billion figure was the key takeaway, and that captured all of the headlines from your report that you had published together with Yinxuan. But tell us more about what you discovered when doing the research into the Zambian debt issue, and what were some of the other findings? Well, Eric, uh, it was, we started out looking at Zambia because Zambia was an outlier. So I want to stress that. This is an unusual case uh, when we look across the other borrowers uh, in Africa. So we had put together a scatter plot, which was a, a graph in which we looked at all of the countries in Africa's total external debt as a percentage of their economy. So that uh, along the y-axis, along the left side, that ranked countries by how indebted they were. And then down at the bottom, we ranked countries by uh, how, what, per, what uh, Chinese loan commitments as a percentage of their economy. So that was how heavy was their borrowing from China or their loan commitments from China, because that was the data that we had. And we found that four countries really stood out in that data. And one of them was Angola, which is not surprising. And another was the Republic of Congo, which again wasn't surprising because both of those countries have borrowed heavily with these oil-secured loans. And when the price of oil went down, they really were in trouble. And so they've been doing loan restructuring with the Chinese for the last few years. Um, and then we had Djibouti up there also. And that's not surprising because Djibouti borrowed in order to buy into the big railway project with Ethiopia because Ethiopia is landlocked. And so they're really linking their economy to Ethiopia's and now their debt is also linked to Ethiopia's borrowing. So that's understandable as well. And then there was Zambia, which was equally up there. 
So I wanted to dive into Zambia and find out just what was going on there. And also, why were our figures for loan commitments so much higher than anything the Zambian government had reported to the World Bank or in its own publications? So that was the start of our research. Following, following up on uh, on Deborah's answer, so much of um, of the, this controversy around Zambian debt has to do with secrecy. So I was wondering how you managed to gather the data. So we get our commitment data from open source. For example, like government reports and media reports and contractor sources and also from Chinese government websites. Zambia's government actually disclo- disclose how, how many that how many new loans they sign each year in their government's annual economic report. So a chunk of information in our database is from their government report on how much they contracted that year. And uh we also dive into uh, Chinese contractors' website where they will report, well, uh, our company signed a new loan contract with the, or supplier's credit contract with Zambia, or our company uh, is uh, received, awarded a contract to construct which, uh, which projects in Zambia with the Chinese Exim Bank Finance. So I think those two are the, like, the most important source of us for Zambia's data. Deborah, it sounds like most of the information that you were pulling from was open source, was publicly available. And I guess that just raised the question for me that given the, the mystery that the amounts that Zambian creditors owe to China has been something that's haunted this relationship for quite some time, why were you the first one to do it? Why didn't a research team at one of the, at the, at the bondholders or others do it if this information was publicly available? Eric, we circulated our report to some of the people we know in the bond world, and they actually weren't surprised. So I think that they have already done this um, this research. And so what's going on behind the scenes, um, there's much more transparency and there's much more information publicly available. But it does take work. It took us a, a lot of work to put all of, all of this together. And I'll say something else, that, that um, Zambia has in the past been much more transparent. It's only been in the last few years that they've started to, um, particularly the central government, has started to become less transparent. So as Inchuan mentioned, in the past, they used to report on all of the new loans that were signed, so all of the new commitments they had gotten into. And they just stopped doing that. So, and that's only been in the past three years or so. So it's partway through the Lungu administration, they stopped reporting as the borrowing got bigger and bigger and more and more worrisome. And that was around the time, it was 2017, that the IMF uh, chastised them for not being careful uh, at the and for getting into debt distress through their imprudent borrowing, and so that uh, that was when they stopped reporting. But it was that was the central government. We found that one of the largest borrowers in Zambia of Chinese finance is actually Zesco, their electricity supply corporation, and Zesco has been very transparent. They they publish with a lag. It's about an 18-month lag, but they do an annual report which lists the actual debt status of all of the different creditors that Zesco has. And that's for their own borrowing as well as for any joint ventures that they have or um, special purpose vehicles. So that's all included in the data that they've released to the public. But they've only published uh, the data for 2019, only came out about a month or less ago. So we were able to include that in our research. 
Uh, but it's quite a lag for the general public. Deborah, in, in an, uh, a related article that you wrote with um, with this one, you call the, the Zambian situation a tragedy of the commons. Can you unpack that a little bit? Like, what, what do you mean by that phrase? <laughs> well, this is something that we talk about in economics and political science. A tragedy of the commons, um, the term itself comes about, uh, it's actually from a... a from Garrett Hardin, who was a, a social scientist who who developed this to explain how um, in situations where there's a common property resource, for example, fishing is often used. Say you have a pond um, and everybody is fishing in there without any regulation, they tend to overfish that. Or you have sheep grazing on a commons, and that's where it comes from originally. And so the individual uh, shepherds or the individual owners of the sheep, they don't have an incentive to regulate themselves. And so uh, Garrett Hardin argued that governments need to come in and regulate, or else you can do it uh, by privatizing it. So if you privatize the whole area and let it be managed by the private sector, they will also regulate it because they have an incentive not to, to overuse it. But if it's a bunch of individuals all operating there without any regulation, then it it can be overfished or overused, and that becomes the tragedy of a common property resource. So I use that analogy because it seemed to me that in Zambia, the the public um, resources, you know, their tax revenues and their, their fisc, their public um, sector money, was being grazed or fished by all of these different stakeholders. So it was both Zambians and Chinese. So the the Zambian politicians were using these public resources uh, to do projects that had political appeal or that could provide employment, employment generation, which is also politically popular, or perhaps could provide kickbacks that would be helpful in election campaigns. So they were overusing it. And then the Chinese lenders were overusing it because they were supplying money into this without being careful about the long-term sustainability of it. And then the Chinese contractors had no incentive to hold back either. So there was no sort of overarching regulatory uh, power that was governing the use of these it's not a common property resource but i thought the analogy worked in terms of this overfishing aspect and so um in this problem or this tragedy of the commons can be solved also by um communities coming together. For example, you could have, if in the case of fishing, you could have all the fishermen together and fishing people regulate themselves by uh, taking timeshares, essentially, or, or holding back. Um, and the same can happen with the people using the grazing areas. They can share it in a way that's sustainable. But, um, and so you could imagine perhaps the Chinese contractors or the Chinese lenders getting together and regulating themselves. But it's really the responsibility of the government to regulate this in a case like Zambia. And I guess that's what also makes Zambia unique. The outlier, as you pointed out, is that unlike, say, Kenya or Angola, where the two policy banks, the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank, are the primary creditors. In Zambia, as you've pointed out in your papers, it's far more chaotic. There are a lot more actors. And then you said it from Beijing, there's this thing that you called fragmented authoritarianism, where there was nobody from the top organizing all these different entities and these creditors into one. So everybody was kind of going at each other. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that idea of fragmented authoritarianism that you wrote about? 
Well, fragmented authoritarianism is not my concept. It's one that's used by political scientists who work on China, and it's been used for a long time. Um, people who don't know China very well often speak about Beijing doing this or China doing that or perhaps the CCP doing this, the Chinese Communist Party, as though there's one entity, as though as general secretary of the Communist Party, Xi Jinping sits up there in Beijing and directs all of these different actors in the field to do things. Uh, but that's not how it works. It's an authoritarian system, but it's very fragmented. There are a lot of different stakeholders. They, there are a lot of different interests, and they compete with each other. And so um, any kind of, even within China, uh, making decisions is much more contested and much more, um, uh, it, it's much less unilateral in terms of how things happen. And if you go overseas, it becomes even harder. It's, it's much harder for um, the the key people like the Ministry of Finance or, or others, uh, People's Bank of China, which is their central bank, to monitor or regulate what's going on there. And then when you have Chinese companies providing credit, which is what we see in cases like Zambia as well, then you've got SASEC, which is the State Assets Commission, which all the big state-owned enterprises are under their jurisdiction jurisdiction. But SASEC is pretty much letting them, they're supposed to anyway, be letting them make their profits and losses on their own. So they're not monitoring it all that well either. So there's really no, um, and if you take the analogy of the United States as a kind of parallel, there's no one in the United States either that's kind of monitoring um, all of the different banking decisions. There are things like they're monitoring the general health of banks. You know, what do they have in terms of their reserve ratios and trying to make sure that the they are healthy. But as we've seen with the the uh, 2008 financial crisis or the savings and loan crisis in the past, it doesn't always work well, even in a pretty well-regulated capitalist system like ours. And in China, which is still an evolving system in terms of their regulatory framework, as they move from the state to the market, those ways of, of managing, particularly for overseas activities, are still weakly developed. In China, one of the major findings of, of, of the report is the number of Chinese lenders involved and that, that, that there's 18 different Chinese lenders involved at least, that, that's some of the highest numbers in, in Africa. Um, could you break down that number for us? Like how, how do, like in which kind of categories we, do these lenders fall? Are they mostly banks or what, what kind of other, other kind of actors are involved? Most of the creditors are still Chinese banks, including the two policy banks, the Exim Bank and the China Development Bank. In addition to that, several Chinese commercial banks also lent to Zambia, including ICBC, uh, Bank of China, and China International Trust and Investment Corporation, which is called CITIC in China. But uh, other than this, uh, like commercial banks and policy banks, there's still uh, CITGA, which is the China... Uh, China's official uh, lending lending agency for those zero interest loans. Uh, but other than those banks, there are still several suppliers and contractors providing suppliers credits and contractor facilitated finance in Zambia. And that's uh, what really complicates the situation. Some companies offering suppliers credit in Zambia in, are like Poly Technology and CATIC, which is reported in Zambia's annual reports. And we also identified one company that is providing a contractor facilitated finance, uh, which is the China Geo Construction Company. 
yeah, that's basically the overall image. Yeah, so Inchun, we oftentimes hear about the lack of transparency in Chinese lending, and we don't know who the various actors are. When you were doing the research for this project, how difficult was it for you to find some of this information that you said was on their websites, but was it accessible or did they make it difficult for you to find? Walk us through that part. I think most of the information is easy to find. So, for example, in Zambia's government website, there is a location for annual economic reports, but they only put certain certain years report online at a certain time. So it is important to get the report and save it, and then you can use it for later use. But in that report, there is a section called like. Uh, I can't remember the exact name, but it's like new government loan contracted this year. And in that table, the government will provide a summary of like projects and loans and amount and creditors that they signed this year. But sometimes that table doesn't list suppliers credit very clearly. So that's when we need to go to suppliers or contractors websites to find information. In that case, things might be tricky. So if someone knows which company is doing a project in Zambia, it will be easy to search the name um, and then go to their website and search for Zambia as a keyword on their website. Um, if, if we know this information, it will be great to, and it will be easy to identify this news on their website because um, Chinese companies are really trying to going out and doing overseas projects. And this is an important performance index for some of those uh, state-owned enterprises. So this kind of news is uh, easily accessible on their website. But sometimes people don't really know who which company is implementing the project in Zambia. So that's when we need to do more like research on which projects is going on and who is doing it. And that leads us to where we can find more information of the law. Deborah, um, you know, kind of lo- looking forward in, in in this crisis situation, all of the discussion around it has has, has been framed because it, you know coincided with with all of, with the, the discussion around debt traps um, that you know that that was particularly promoted by the Trump administration. This idea that China, are, you know, in, on purpose in debts like debt sensitive countries and then to, to, to gain leverage over them and particularly in the in the original debt trap narrative to seize assets. So, you know, as your work itself has shown that that actually doesn't happen on, on the ground. But which what kind of re- recourse is open to these lenders you know in on in in a, in a more kind of a realistic you know in a, if, if we look forward to more realistically like you know kind of if if zambia if, if the crisis continues what kind of um instruments are there for them to get some of their money back <laughs> that's a really good question Clovis. um zambia is a really good example of a creditor trap So what we're seeing already in the data um, is that some of the Chinese creditors have had to give um, payment holidays or grace extend grace periods because Zambia just has not been paying. So, for example, the Zesco, the Electricity Supply Corporation, they list um, in their annual reports their actual uh, because they they list the uh, outstanding balance of the loan. We can see years where that outstanding balance should have been going down, and it wasn't because they just weren't paying on it. So we can see those. Um, actual defaults, essentially, uh, showing up in the data. So it's already happening. And we could see even at the beginning of the uh, the Debt Sustainability Suspension Initiative, which was supposed to help 
uh, developing countries deal with the pandemic, we could see that there was already $200 million in arrears in Zambia that they had not been paying to various Chinese creditors. So it really doesn't look as though um, the creditors have very much recourse here because um, there, there are several different things going on. And one of the important things is that in Zambia, there are all of these ongoing projects. So there are projects that have already started and the disbursements have already been happening. The contractors are there doing the work. And somehow those contractors need to get paid. And so you find um, cases like the Kafua Gorge. This is a $2 billion project, and there's $1.53 billion in a syndicated loan from Chinese banks going to fund that project. And Sino-Hydro is carrying it out. So the Zambian government has really been pushing hard for that project to be completed. The Lungu administration was pushing hard uh, for it to be completed before the election. And sure enough, they got to the point where they were able to commission the hydropower project. And one of the um, the big um, turbines was made operational. It's still not finished. But there's been a lot more work done than has been dispersed. So Sino-Hydro hasn't been paid for that. And the the Chinese banks are at the point of, do they disperse more into a, a very problematic situation or do they hold off? And I think um, what we can see is that they've been holding off. And so the the contractors now are the ones that essentially are are owed this money. So it's a very uh, it's a very complicated situation. Um, when you ask about what recourse do they have, there are, are to get even more complicated. There are two different stylized loan models, um, and one would be the one that has a sovereign guarantee. And when there's a, a loan with a sovereign guarantee, the government essentially says that they they will waive sovereign immunity. And what that means is that they say, okay, if you're going to loan us this money, then if we don't repay you, you can sue us. And if you win your suit, you can try to get your money back um, through attaching an asset of some kind, which will usually have to be external because um, it's very it, it almost never works to try to, um, uh, to, to win it for a creditor to win a lawsuit and then actually obtain an asset internally. So this kind of um, unrestricted lending would, uh, that means that the creditor would then have to go after an asset in a foreign country. And we can see this uh, all the time happening with, uh, for example, these vulture funds, which are not Chinese, but when they buy up uh, debt of developing countries and then try to get the government to go to pay it, they will go after assets. For example, if the uh, borrowing government has an airplane or, or uh, an airlines, they can try to um, put a lien on or to attach um, an airplane that happens to be outside of the country. We saw this happening in the case of um, a German bank that was trying to get repaid for a loan they had made in Zimbabwe. And they actually were trying to, uh, I don't know if you remember when there was a, uh, a ship full of arms that was coming into South Africa and those arms were from China and those arms were intended for the Zimbabwe government. Well, the, the debt collectors that the German government had hired were trying to get to that port in South Africa to grab that cargo so they could sell it and get some money back for their debt. Uh, but the boat left South Africa before that was able to happen. So that's the kind of thing that the dance that goes on between 
um, creditors, sovereign creditors, and um, or sovereign borrowers and creditors. But there's another um, loan model which is done basically if it's more of a private debt or or project finance debt, and this would be non recourse lending. And in that case, it's the asset itself that serves as the security for the loan. So that's sort of like when someone takes out a mortgage for a house. It's just the house that's the security. Um, and so if they don't pay, they the bank can uh, claim that security, which would be the asset of the project. In the case of Zambia, we see that structure with the Kafua Gorge because they've adopted this, what's called a special purpose vehicle structure. And so that means that, uh, that the, the assets of that investment of the Kafua Gorge are sort of ring-fenced. The creditors can't go after anything else. They only can go after that asset if the loan doesn't get repaid. So all of these things, this is just how it works in legal terms, and it may have been overly complicated to try to explain that because it took me a long time to try to understand these complicated concepts. And that concept of of waiving sovereign immunity, is that the same issue that was in Nigeria earlier, I think it was this year or late last year, where people misinterpreted that as waiving the sovereignty of the country? but it was actually just waiving sovereign immunity to settle the issue in arbitration or in a foreign court. Exactly, exactly. And these concepts are not well understood by uh, the population at large. And so in the case of, we can see this is, this has come up in Kenya, it's come up in Montenegro, it's come up in Nigeria, where people don't understand these very standard clauses in international financial contracts, and they worry about what that means for their country. Well, let's quickly talk about the transparency issue, because that is a big one in Zambia. One of the things that Kobus and I have been hearing is that the Chinese creditors, or a group of them at least, are willing to take a haircut, as they say, and it's just to reduce the debt and to take some losses, but they're insisting on secrecy clauses in those debt restructuring deals. And in many ways, that's counterproductive, again, because the markets are looking for some clarity and some visibility into the debt situation, into the relationship that the sovereign borrower has with the Chinese creditors. So talk to us a little bit about this issue of the Chinese insistence on secrecy and whether or not that is going to be an impediment to Zambia ultimately resolving its broader debt crisis. The This emphasis on secrecy is... Um it's banking and uh, accountancy, I think, are two of the most secretive um, fields. You know, if, if you think about international banking and you want to understand secrecy, think about Switzerland. <laughs> this is, Switzerland is sort of the paragon of, of banking uh, secrecy. So it's, um, it's a field in which secrecy is the norm. And so having um, this uh, confidentiality clauses in commercial banking is the norm. That's not the norm in foreign aid. But um, our research, and I think a, a lot of people's research, once you look into it, uh, the, this finance that's coming out from China, very little of it is foreign aid. It's, this is commercial lending. And even if it has a discount of some kind, it's still an export credit. And all of that, there's much less transparency about all of those um, forms of commercial finance globally and not just for the Chinese. So that's one aspect that I think uh, if you look at China as a donor um, and then you compare them to the World Bank, which is extremely transparent as a, as a multilateral taxpayer-funded entity, it's appropriately tech, uh, transparent. 
But these commercial banks, um, or even so China Development Bank or China Exim Bank, which is a commercial creditor by and large, uh, for them to be secretive is more the norm. So there is um, a, there's a, a move, of course, to get more transparency there, and it would be healthy, but it's not unusual for them to be secretive. So in terms of uh, what this is going to mean, I think that it's uh, Zambia already has legislation that um, requires the government to uh, pass all of its lending by parliament. And parliament is supposed to sign off on the terms, uh, the amounts. And uh, this is for both direct loans from the state itself and anything they guarantee. So what this means, now now this um, parliamentary provision is contested. There have been lawsuits about it because the Zambian government obviously wasn't following that. And so that's, that's still in the courts, um, although there's been one decision that came down against transparency in Zambia, but that was under the Lungu administration. So it could be that if that is tried again, the decision might be different under this government, which is, is very committed to transparency. But all of these uh, banking contracts have a provision in them that says if required by local law, then, you know, of course, the government can publish whatever they need to out of this. So I think the, um, that we know, for example, the research that was done by Aid Data and the Center for Global Development, they found all of these loan contracts out there, even though they had this provision, they were still publicly available because uh, the host governments wanted transparency. And so that was allowed. In turn, the paper notes that um, between 2010 and 2019, um, Zambia signed 53 different loan contracts with, with, um, with Chinese funders. Do you have a rough idea about how many of those projects were actually completed, how many of them are mid-project now, and how many of them are still in, sitting in the future and may, may end up being written off? Overall, for all the projects signed since 2000 to, to, uh, to from 2000 to 2019, um, like f- more than 50% of them in terms of project number of projects are completed and like around 30% of them are under implementation and like 10 or like 10% and, and that uh, is signed but not started but uh, like another around five percent was signed and then cancelled or suspended most of the projects are signed after 2010 as we mentioned so i don't think this percentage will change a lot if we exclude that like a few projects signed in 2000 like into 2000 to 2010 decade so so there's not really much money that can be sa- saved by simply cancelling projects that haven't been implemented yet those are actually the, the relatively small cut of, of the total yeah like not started projects are only a small part of the total but they can tr- try to suspend some ongoing projects to save money and uh, i remember last time we had a call with uh, some other guy doing their similar research they said they have a lot of pipeline projects scheduled and they were planning to borrow more money for those pipeline projects but because of the debt situation they're actually cutting those pipeline projects instead of suspending currently ongoing projects so that's another way to save money, I'd say. Deborah, let's wrap up our conversation with looking forward. Take out your crystal ball. You've been looking at this issue for a long time. You've done another fascinating, interesting report. How does this play out over the next one to two years? 
Does Zambia get its IMF deal and then settle with the bondholders and then everybody's happy with the Chinese? Or does this descend into some sort of chaos or something in between? How does this play out? I think Zambia's fortunate in one way, and that is that the largest creditor by far is still the China Exim Bank. And so China Exim Bank is one of the policy banks. It is the bank, the only bank uh, in China that has participated in the debt suspension initiative of the G20. And so uh, China Exim Bank is likely to um, do whatever it takes uh, to eventually get to um, get Zambia into solvency. So what will be more problematic is negotiating with all the other entities, because all of that's going to have to be done by Zambia outside of the common framework. The common framework is the, uh, the I guess it's a sort of a venue or, or a, a framework. It's a, it's a, a virtual um, entity where this debt renegotiation and restructuring um, is going on. It's between the Paris Club, which is a group of 20-some wealthy countries that have provided credit, official credit, and the group of 20, the G20, that have um, been part of the debt, that have launched the debt suspension initiative. So this common framework, only three countries have asked to have their debt restructured there, Chad, Ethiopia, and Zambia. And so Exim Bank, I think, will be able to, they'll um, cooperate with the IMF and the other banks will probably cooperate, but it's just going to have to be individual negotiations by the Zambians with those other banks because they won't be sitting there inside the room at the common framework the way the China Exim Bank and its representatives will be because they're part of that uh, common framework, um, sort of the core creditors that make that up. But but it's not going to, because Exim Bank is such a big part of the creditor, it's, it'll help a lot when they um, get to the point of, of restructuring. It's actually completely the opposite of the debt trap narrative, yeah. <laughs> where it's not the policy bank that is acquiring the assets, but it's the policy bank that's actually providing part of the solution, which is kind of odd. Uh, because, again, we've heard for so long, I mean, you've been trying to debunk this for years, that that's not the case. Listen, there are two papers that are of interest here. So Zambia's Chinese debt in the pandemic era, that's both by Deborah and Yin Xun, and a second paper, how Zambia and China co-created a debt tragedy of the commons by Deborah Braudigan. We'll put links to both of the papers in the show notes. Deborah Yin Xun, thank you so much for helping to explain all of this and to clarify what is an incredibly complicated situation. We really appreciate your time today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure being here, and uh, it's good to discuss this with you guys. Kobus, what I enjoy most about speaking with Deborah, every time we speak with her, the same thing comes away, is that she's challenging conventional wisdom. Again, she has been the voice out there in Washington, standing up against the hordes who are saying that China's engaging in debt trap diplomacy in Zambia. And in fact, what her research is pointing out is that Zambia is the outlier in so many different ways. And again, it's fascinating that she said it's fortunate that China Exim Bank is one of the largest creditors because they can then help to solve the problem, very much in contrast to the idea that they're going to be seizing assets. But this idea in many ways that Zambia is an outlier because of the 
number of creditors, the nature of the debt, the tragedy of the commons, as she pointed out. We cannot extract too much out of what's happening in Zambia and then stretch it across Africa. And that is the temptation with so much of these topics and these discussions about the Chinese debt crisis in some parts of Africa. I oftentimes remind people when I'm giving talks is that Africa does not have a Chinese debt problem. And that kind of makes everybody stand up because, of course, Africa has a Chinese debt problem. I've been hearing all about how Africa has a Chinese debt problem. And then you break it down. You say about 10 African countries have a Chinese debt problem. And within that 10, Zambia is in many ways exceptional, as we're finding out from this research. So it's really important to go beyond these very simplistic headlines and these narratives. And again, that's what Deborah's contribution to the field has been so important is to challenge conventional wisdom, as she's done yet again in this report. Yes, I completely agree. And it's also really important to to be specific about, about the Zambian case because, you know, kind of like a situation like Zambia is frequently used to, to kind of present a, a falsely inflated narrative of African risk. You know, so this is a point that, that Hannah Ryder at Development Reimagined has made repeatedly, um, that that there's a kind of a, that, that, that African risk is overstated. Um in in most cases, and you know, and and that a situation like Zambia, which which is in in many cases unique, um, is is then made to kind of stand in for the entire continent, which is not fair. One other thing to point out, though, is the fact that Zambia depends on copper sales for the bulk of its foreign currency revenue in order to pay off a lot of these loans. That's a very risky thing to do because we go into these things called commodity super cycles, where the price is up and then the price is down. But it's interesting because China Mali, which is one of the largest copper and cobalt mining companies in the world, I think that the number two cobalt mining company is just about to invest $2.5 billion to expand their copper production in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. And I wonder if there is a fatigue in the in Zambia of risk. So we talk about the risk premium, in, and Zambia in many ways is exceptional, but one of the things I've been reading in the Chinese press is that there's a little bit of exhaustion of the drama that's been going on in Zambia throughout the Lungu years and now into Ishilemas and, and this question of who's going to get paid, when you're going to get paid back. And so as we heard from Yinshun and Deborah, Chinese creditors are reluctant now to open up the financing spigots into Zambia so long as there's no pathway to be repaid. And might that now shift some of the copper production away from Zambia and into the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has a whole other set of problems? <laughs> so that's not that's really from the frying pan to the fire, but it is very interesting and potentially dangerous for Zambia. I mean, I, I can definitely see that. I can also see the opposite situation, which is that despite all of this crisis, all of the all of the kind of and particularly all of the dysfunction within Zambia, you know, the the way that the way that the Lungu government, for example, like you know, undermined Zambia's pretty pro- progressive transparency legislation and and made things less transparent. I can imagine that that despite all of these problems, in the end, copper will end up pulling it through, um, because the, you know I, I saw I saw uh, I think a Bloomberg graphic recently, like just projections for copper use. Um, you know, due, due to be because copper is, is involved in so many climate mitigation technologies, and just kind of just predicting copper going through the roof 
for the next few decades, you know. So I can imagine that 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 people will end up <laughs> end up kind of sucking it up, kind of holding their noses, and, and and end up lending more money to Zambia actually because of the copper, you know, kind of, and because everyone just will just expect to make money out of copper for the next fifty years. I read a great paper earlier this week, and I am absolutely spacing the author. So forgive me if you are listening to the show and this is your anecdote. I am not trying to plagiarize. I would give you credit if I remembered your name. But the point that they made about Zambia was, I thought, very interesting, is that Lungu ran his campaign, especially in the last two weeks, on the basis of delivering infrastructure to his people. And he went from one Chinese infrastructure project to another, zigzagging across the country, and it didn't work. And this has happened now over and over again that African leaders have used Chinese infrastructure to try and run campaigns, and they haven't been successful. And it's going to be interesting to see if other African politicians, namely Felix Chesikedi in the Democratic Republic of Congo, are looking at what happened to Lungu, who based his campaign on building infrastructure using Chinese loans and Chinese contractors and lost because the public didn't react to that. I'm wondering if there's going to be some ramifications out of Zambia that might then be felt in other countries, say Nigeria and the DRC, and possibly even Kenya, who've made very big investments in Chinese-built infrastructure. I can imagine. I mean, that would be an interesting kind of flip of of the script, um, where you know the infrastructure would become less important than than the the perception of transparency. You know, so if Ishilema manages to to pull off something, some kind of like rescue, um, and you know, kind of, and and he manages to actually maintain the kind of high level of transparency that he that he was elected for, then that would be an interesting lesson to send to, uh, to African politicians. Well, I still contend that Hishilema is in his honeymoon period. And let's go back to your president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who in the first six months was walking on clouds and could do no wrong. And there was so much hope and optimism. And really, in the second year of his administration, it all started to kind of head downwards in terms of popularity and cynicism and scandals and problems. So Hishilema has a little bit more time, and I still contend, and I made this comment in a previous podcast and in a column, that he's got to take really, really bold moves right now, big moves right now, when he's got the honeymoon. Because as he goes on in his administration, he's going to start getting pulled in by parliament, by the creditors, by outside forces, by all sorts of different places, and his ability to move is going to become far more constrained. So I would like him to do something big. And I didn't have a chance to ask Deborah about it, but I would like to get her take on this, is pushing Parliament to pass a law that forces transparency and openness on all loan contracts from every stakeholder, not just the Chinese, but the Europeans, domestic loans, all of it. And uh, I'd like to see Parliament do that, free up the president to be able to say, it was out of my hands, Parliament did this, the speaker, the new speaker of the Parliament, she did it. And that way we would be able to see really what's going on I know that's probably asking too much, but it is that kind of bold move that I'd like to see him do if he's going to have really dramatic change. Maybe it's not possible. Maybe I'm asking for too much, but his time is limited in my view. Yeah. I mean, the, the beyond the time being limited is also just the South African lesson is also that very frequently, even during a honeymoon period, these, these leaders have relatively little kind of space to move in because they're so dependent on, on different, on, on, on balancing different factions within their own parties. I'm not, I don't have any kind of particular information about 
Geopolitische Lemma in this regard, but this is certainly true in South Africa. Um, you know, like Deborah, in, in the one paper, Deborah called for um, for all of these different Chinese lenders to be organized under what what she kind of like a shorthand that she she called the Beijing Club, similar to the Paris Club. You know, so so that that I think would be an, a major kind of step forward on the Chinese side. On the Zambian side, I would echo Hannah Ryder, who recently called for all of these different lenders in the global south to form a kind of a all of these borrowers. I mean, in the global south, to form a kind of a borrowers club. You know, to to, to for, for you know as as a as as another another version of the same kind of like like radical transparency initiative that you were calling for is essentially a kind of a, a mechanism for for information exchange between borrowers. Um, you know, in order to 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 have some kind of like openness about the the kinds of the terms of the loans and the kind of the kind of mechanisms involved to have some kind of collective you know not only information sharing but collective pressure from borrowers. I think that would be a major step forward. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Zambia will become the leader of it. It will be the Zambia club, the Lusaka club. Yeah, and if that extends beyond Africa, that would be even better. So that borrowers in South America and South Asia and others around the world are comparing notes because really it's important to look what the Chinese are doing in many parts of the world and not just in the one region. That's what we try and do in the coverage we provide uh, every day in our newsletter, on the website, in the podcast. We're trying to put the Chinese in Africa engagement into a broader context. We'd love for you to become a subscriber to support the journalism that we do, to support our team, and to receive the daily newsletters and to get access to our thousands of articles in our online archive. You can search everything on our website, by flag, which is we've indexed every article by country and also by keyword. So love for you to check it out. You can try it for free for 30 days. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe and uh, let us know if you have any questions. You can reach me at Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com and also Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So That'll do it for this edition of the show. Once again, I want to thank all of our new Patreon members. Uh, we're going to be joining you, a lot of you, this week for some Zoom chats. And then also we're posting regularly on Patreon with updates and cool videos that we're doing there. So once again, thank you to all of you for supporting. Thank you to all of our subscribers. We really appreciate everything that you're doing as well. And so that'll be it for this edition of the show. Next week, our next episode, Kobus and I are going to be flying solo and we're going to do, again, one of our, what did we call it? Our lightning rounds, where we're going to take three or four of the hot topics and go through them. So that'll be coming up in our next episode. Until then, for Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com. Project.com.